Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And as you're turning there, I'm going to point out that we are approaching the break point in the Gospel of Mark. Up until this point, it has been a number of ways that the ministry of Christ has been prepared, Christ has been anointed, and then he has been working miracles and teaching and interacting with people so that people who are looking would see him. And people who really are trying to understand what he's saying would hear him. And those who are only there to oppose him and reject him, that they would get their way as well. And the question that really comes up over and over again is who is Jesus? And we try our best to read the Gospel of Mark up until this point through the lens of people who are examining this for the first time. And they're seeing all of the works that he does and making a decision about who he actually is. And then in Mark chapter 8, Christ himself will ask the question. When he pulls his disciples aside and says to them, who do people say that I am? And it is this interaction that will shift the entire gospel narrative away from just people coming to him and having interactions with him to try to make a case for who he is to the declarative statement that he is the Christ, the coming one that the entire world is waiting for. And the subsequent chapters will find the gospel of Mark leading us to the ultimate mission that Christ was on, which was not simply to perform miracles or to confound the wise with his teaching, but to go all the way to the cross and not simply to conquer the enemy of the day, but the ultimate enemy of death through the power of resurrection. One of the lessons that we will learn in this question, who is Christ, is that it is a question that will be asked over and over and over again throughout everyone's lives that try to understand him. This is not a question that will be answered once and for all in your life. Who is Christ today in your life? What is he calling you to trust him with? What is he speaking to you in ways that you'll have to pray to seek his wisdom to understand? And we get a reminder of that in the way that leading up to the question that we'll look at next week, who do men say that I am? We're going to get a series of events that have already happened. And really the gospel of Mark plays out like a pattern of his teaching and then people who confront him and then miraculous power and then people who question it. And in Mark chapter 8, we will get really the climax of all of that with one of his greatest miracles on repeat. And so in Mark chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus calls his disciples to himself and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. So Christ sees a multitude of people who have followed him all the way into the wilderness. It says that he has been teaching them for an extended period of time. And now before he leaves, he has this moment of compassion, realizing that for him to send them away would be at their detriment because they don't have enough food. The supply has run thin. And in reading this, for those of you who have been reading the Gospel of Mark or coming Sunday by Sunday, studying the Gospel of Mark with us, you're probably thinking, this sounds exactly like Mark chapter 6, 
when Jesus called his disciples to find a deserted place to get away, get some rest, take a break from ministry, be refreshed in the presence of God. A multitude follows Jesus and his disciples to the desert. It says he looks at them like a sheep looking at lost, or like a shepherd looking at lost sheep, and he has compassion, and he says to his disciples, we need to take care of it. It is, in some ways, so similar that some Bible scholars look at this and say it's actually the same story told twice. What's actually happening is there is something inside the human heart and the human mind and your experience in following Jesus or living by faith in whatever worldview you adhere to that requires you to go through the same lessons over and over and over and over again before you finally understand the point you're supposed to be learning. It reminds me of a story I heard not long ago of a, a pastor who was just hired by the search committee looking for their new lead pastor. Exciting times for a church, nervous times for a church probably. We've been through it. We'll probably go through it again someday. And this particular pastor, it's his first Sunday. And so everyone's, you know, it's that first Sunday when everyone's kind of like, let's see what this guy's got. You know, I remember our Sunday when we did that. And uh, some of you stuck around. <laughs> And it's his first Sunday, and he delivers a message that is biblically accurate, theologically sound, life application abounds, and everyone nudging, agreeing, and amen. They meet in the lobby, and they're like, this guy is our guy. We love him. Isn't it great when you hear a great message? And with that encouragement, everyone comes back the next week, and he opens the Bible to the exact same passage of Scripture, and he gives the same biblically accurate message with deep theological truths and the same uh, vibrant life, ap life application. And everyone looks at each other. Some people notice, some people don't. And for those who do, they think, okay, got something more out of that than we did last week, so that's fine. Sometimes when you listen to a song the second time, you, you, you understand a little bit better. And uh, everyone's still excited until week three. And he opens the Bible, and he turns to the exact same passage of Scripture, and he gives the same biblically accurate, theologically deep, and life-applying sermon for a third week in a row. And at this point, people are like, uh, this is weird. <laughs> you can't just preach the same sermon over and over again. And so someone pulls him aside, and on behalf of the congregation that is ready for some deeper meat, uh, they say, do you have anything else? Do you have any other sermons? He says, I've got lots of sermons, but I'm going to keep preaching this one until you do it. And everyone pauses and thinks, how rude. <laughs> That's not how our culture works. We want a new episode. We want a new movie. We want a new song. We want a new study. We want everything to be fresh and new. And anything we've heard, we've mastered. But I have to say, listening to that story, I thought, you know, that is actually pretty true. And as much weight as I feel as a preacher to uh, give biblically accurate and theologically deep life-applying messages, I know that most of you probably don't remember what I said last week. And for those who have ears to hear in the timing of God's providence, he brings you in and he gives you something that will bless your soul. But for the most part of the hundreds of sermons I've given, uh, you, you remember very little. And I'm the same way as a student. And we are not just that way with Sunday morning sermons. We are that way with God as we long for God to move in our life and answer our prayers and give us more truth and wisdom to live by, the response from the Lord could often be, start with the wisdom I've already given you. Start living the truth that you've already 
had revealed to you. And as we read through this story, I myself admit, I almost said, well, let's just skip through this. If anyone wants to hear a message about Jesus feeding multitudes, we just gave it on Mark chapter 6, and I can share the link in an email. And yet so much of answering the question that is being answered as you study the Gospels, as you seek God on a Sunday morning, as you try to live your life for him, is a repetition of things that will come up over and over and over and over again, and us simply learning how to more and more and more believe God for who he says he is. And so we look at this story. And in some ways, we'll look at this story and we'll draw the same exact principles as we already did, and it will land on our hearts in a new way for God to say, now go do it. And in other ways, the Gospel of Mark is using this as that continental divide to take people who still don't fully see it, and in some ways, those who don't want to see it never will, and those who don't see it yet still desire more. There's grace and there's hope that every single one of us see through a mere dimly lit, it says in 1 Corinthians. We don't fully see the glory of God yet. We don't fully understand the depth of his love. We don't understand all the truth and wisdom of scripture. And yet there is grace for those who come wanting to know more. So we start again in verse 2. The motivation is the same as it was in Mark chapter 6. He says, I have compassion on them. They have now continued with me three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Here is a fundamental principle of getting to know Christ and answering the question of who he is in your life. And it will come up all of the time. It comes up the day that you hear the gospel pronounced and you make a decision about actually living it. And then it comes up every time you read a proverb and wonder if you should apply it to your life. And then it comes up when you hear a sermon. You think about which parts were for you and which parts were for your neighbor. The question at its core is, does God actually care about you? The Jesus that we study and all of the ways he has revealed himself as powerful and authoritative over nature and the spiritual realm and the body itself... One of the challenges for your life to live as radically as the word actually calls you to live is, do you believe he cares about you? And so in feeding the multitudes, in both accounts, he is moved with compassion. And a detail that actually separates this story from the last one is that it is not just a description about him. This is something for the first and only time he says of himself. I love these people. I have compassion on people who have been seeking me so intensely that they now have run out of supplies. He gives a prediction of what would happen had he class dismissed and not cared for them. He says, if I send them away hungry to go to their own houses, they'll faint on the way. They won't make it home. They're in the wilderness again. They're 10 to 15 miles from civilization. And the question remains in your life. If you seek Christ, if you draw near to him, if you're so focused on him that some of the other needs of your life seem to be secondary, does he care? This is a time to try to cut out all that we know about Christ and the culture we live in and just elevate him as altogether different than anyone who has ever had a crowd. You think about the day and age we live in and we understand that people actually do gravitate towards crowds. This is... You can't read the Gospels and, and, and not notice that everywhere he went, people flocked to him. He was a celebrity of his day. 
Think of anyone who could come into Boise and have large crowds of people show up into the stadium, and Christ is the first of that. But the separation of that, and for us to understand about Christ, is that celebrities don't care about you. I hate to say that. Your favorite celebrity might be an actor, it might be a basketball player, it might be a movie star, it might be a... Uh, someone who's got a great voice and people flock. And here's uh, across the board. Humans can't handle fame because they don't actually know how to care for all the people that would flock to them. Except for one person who was never overwhelmed by the needs of a crowd. He never had to take the back door out of the, out of the stadium. He never had to run from the people because he couldn't actually care for them in any more than just a stage. Jesus has the capacity to care for anyone who follows him. And that is a message that will be repeated in your life time and time again when you come to the place where your need meets a mystery. And this is the next lesson that we get in both stories, repeated now for us this morning, because the disciples ask a question that every true follower of Christ has asked of him. Then the disciples answered him and said, How? And we keep reading, it says, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? As we looked at this in the first account of him feeding multitudes, it was right to point out that they were in the wilderness in a time when there was not a falafel shop around every corner. There was not a logical way for the compassion of Christ to meet the needs of the people. They didn't see it. And we would not have been unlike them. How on earth will the provision actually meet the need if there's nowhere to get food? In the first time this happened, they said, do you want us to raise money and then go buy food and bring it back? Because they couldn't understand how Christ would care for people. And repetition. And the lesson persists. And if you have not Come to a place in your following of Christ where you haven't sincerely asked him, how on earth will this actually work? You probably haven't followed him beyond your own understanding, which is following Christ 101. He will pull you out of your own how and logic and reason and into an understanding of him being altogether different than anything else you could give your life to because God is not confounded by all of the ways that we don't see how something could actually work. Which brings us to another repeated lesson from both stories into this sanctuary, into your week, into all of the questions you have for God. Jesus answers the question with a question. When the disciples say, how will we do this? Christ says, how many loaves do you have? Let's start with what you do have. Let's start with what the Bible will call time and time and time again, an offering. Do you want to see where your faith meets the provision of Christ? What do you have? What are you willing to give him to see what he'll do with it? Does he need their fish and loaves? Did he need them to bring anything to the table? This is the God that can create something out of nothing. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. He can create fish that never had life that were born grilled, apparently. <laughs> and yet, he says to his disciples then and his disciples now, what do you have? 
If you give it to me, I can show you what I can do. Which is why, it's good to point out, that when we take an offering, it is both practical and symbolic. In fact, if you're visiting and you're not a normal churchgoer, that was probably your least favorite part of our, our little gathering is when, when Noah stands up and says, we're going to pray for our offering because, of course, an offering can also be used in a way that is totally indistinguishable from a good faith offering to God and more to do with gathering money to do all sorts of things that God never called people to do. But that core of it, the symbol of it is, God, every week we want to put things into your hands that were once in ours. One, we believe, believe you gave them to us. Any fish and loaves that exist in a crowd, any dollar that exists in a, in a wallet, any gift or resource that could ever be an offering is first given by God. But secondarily, it is to say, God, and we also believe that when we put things in your hands, you can do things with them that we could never have done if they remained in our hands. And so once again, as a repetition of the lesson and a reminder for all of us, part of seeing God work in our lives is to actually make a sacrifice of life so that he can use it. And they said to him, seven. This is as much dialogue as the disciples have with Christ in this moment. And I am so grateful for this moment where we can look at the disciples and say, praise God for their Humble response. They didn't argue. They didn't say it doesn't matter. They didn't say it's one one-thousandth of what we need. They said, here it is, Lord. And as many times as you can listen to a sermon, rightfully so, that will look at the disciples here and say, did you not remember what you just saw? You forgetful disciples, slow of learning, stick enough people. If we were there, we would have done it in a minute. In some ways, you can elevate the disciples and say, Christ asked, and they gave. What do you have in your life? You will not follow Christ until you are willing to answer the question with, here it is. It may not be a lot, certainly not enough, but here is what I do have. Now we get another lesson that is the same from the first. It's here and it exists as a lesson for all of us this morning. Verse 6, so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before them and they sat they set them before the multitude once again we find Christ using resources that exist ever so small and then commanding people to some sort of obedient response to how he wanted to deliver the food in the first telling or the first multitude that was fed they were broken down into small groups, laid on the green grass, sitting there waiting for the meal to be delivered. The disciples take it from the Lord, and then they're commanded to pass it out. And this will be one of the lessons that comes up over and over and over again in our lives of following Christ is, not only are you willing to make an offering, but are you willing to do what he tells you to do? In a moment of the Sermon on the Mount that actually exists in Luke, probably a different telling of that because Jesus told the same sermons more than once. He says to those, why do you call me Lord if you're not willing to do what I tell you to do? Why do you want more wisdom and more truth and more Bible studies and more theology if you're not doing what you already know Christ has called you to do? It reminds me of the very first miracle 
that Christ, most people think Christ's very first miracle was seen in the Gospel of John, a wedding at Canaan. What a wonderful, miraculous moment in the ministry of Christ. You're at a wedding and nightmare for the host, you're out of wine, which makes merriment for the celebration. Culturally, at the time, that would be considered a horrible embarrassment for the host. And to be honest, if you're hosting a wedding and you run out of food or supplies now, it's still, it's, it's going to work. It's going to be a blessed marriage, but it's not a great wedding. Okay, so no offense, but if I come to your wedding and there's no food, it, it's embarrassment. And so Christ uses this as an opportunity to show his power and his grace and the symbolism of a wedding. We could do a whole sermon on the first miracle, but the moment where the miracle starts to take shape is when the mother of Jesus comes to Jesus and tells him the situation. And then she looks at everyone who is around Jesus and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And that was part of the moment where the miracle was going to take shape because he had commands for the people to take part in. And they were strange. He commanded people to take water pots and fill them with water. And if you're a logical person, if you're at all a doubting person, you'd probably think, I'm not sure these people are going to love water at a wedding. And yet, doing whatever they were told to do allowed Christ to turn water into wine. And doing whatever they were commanded to do allowed Christ to section them off with a small offering and then multiply the offering and bless them. And it is the difference between you answering the question who Christ is in your life today and tomorrow and seeing him move and seeing him provide and understanding his compassion and finding the joy of living for him or slowly become someone that we'll find later as an example of what not to do that just begins to question everything. Do you do what he tells you to do? And then it says, they also had a, a, a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, to, he, set, he said to set them also before them. There's two things just in that moment that we draw and we say, okay, Lord, give us grace as we learn this over and over and over again. One mark of this story that is in both stories is that Jesus asked for loaves. And they collect all the loaves and they give them to Jesus. And then Jesus commands them to get ready for the miracle. And then it sounds like they found some fish as well. And they're like, well, since you're about to do a miracle, let's throw this in as well. It says, then they also found fish. And that is one of the marks of people who have followed Jesus sincerely with their life is that you can't outgive him, meaning you want to continually give him more of whatever you have. Jesus, as we go through the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8, will clearly define what it means to follow him. And it is more radical than most of us live for. But one way to step into that is to continually say to Jesus, I trusted you with my small offering. I want to trust you with more because everything you do in my life is a blessing. And that is the second thing that we find just in verse 7. It says, as they bring Jesus the loaves and the fish, he blesses them. 
Now, practically speaking, if you're looking for a reference point to the tradition of praying before the meal, look no further than Mark chapter 8 for all of the lunches and dinners that happen after this. Bless the meal. Thank God for what he gave you. But it's also a reminder that whatever you give to Jesus, when you make your offerings, you make your sacrifice, you commit your life to him, whatever he blesses is greater than anything you could have done without him. Whatever you give to Christ, you give Christ your life and he blesses you and he gives you more life. He adds to your life. You make Christ the focus of your purpose and the aim of your work and the mission of your life. And he takes all of those other things and he blesses it all in ways that would have been left wanting without him. The joy of knowing him and living for him and serving him is a joy that will increase as we learn to give more and more and more of ourselves to him. And then it says in verse 8, so they ate and they were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. And those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. I love verse 8. Another translation says they ate and they were satisfied. Following Christ and answering the question is not simply a theological question error so that when you get to heaven, it's like going through customs and you answered the right things on your customs form and they give you a stamp and you walk in. Knowing Christ, living for him, sacrificially, obediently, trusting him, is the road to satisfaction. This is a, a, a lesson that we listened to this morning and will be tested immediately. This might be the beginning of your testings tomorrow morning is, is there actually satisfaction and joy in Christ and Christ alone? It seems to be the very beginning of doubt in the experiment of humanity is, did God really say, and are you so sure that living for and trusting in God isn't keeping you from something great? Can you really be satisfied by Jesus? Wouldn't it be better to be satisfied by a booming career and then after you've figured out all of your finances to talk about Jesus then? Wouldn't it be better to do whatever you want with this, this new girl or guy that you're dating and not worry about all this moral ethics about how to honor and respect and live by the design of God? Are we sure that we're not keeping you from something by just enjoying life as you see fit? It would be better to live life according to how you feel and your pleasure. And the answer time and time again is all of the things that you find outside of a life of Christ is vanity. I spent an entire summer looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And the point over and over and over again is there is an evil under the sun. Basically, anything apart from the will of God in your life will tempt you as something that could give you joy, but it won't. It'll be like grasping at the wind. And it will leave you wanting time and time and time again. And we learn this lesson day by day by day. The first thing to bring you joy in the morning is Jesus. The last thing, as you lay down your head to sleep tomorrow night or tonight, it will be the things that you did for Christ that will bring you any satisfaction as your head hits the pillow. Psalms 37 once I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. In other words, if you live your life seeking God and trusting God and offering to God and being obedient to God, you will be cared for. 
He's moved with compassion to care for anyone who seeks him. And there's no one that gives their life to Christ and winds up a homeless beggar on the street wishing they had it all over to do again. And so we look at the feeding of the multitudes, and this is the lesson, that those who come to Christ, one by one, thousand by thousand, Christ will care for them. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. And then it says, immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So as often is the case, Mark will close scene and then give an additional scene to give us a moment to reflect on everything we just talked about. Of course, we do this by seeing how other people are going to react to this moment in the ministry of Jesus. And the first interaction that we have is part of a pattern. Wherever Christ is moving and he's welcoming people in. And of course, this story, one of the ways that it's distinguished between the feeding of the 5,000 is not simply in the details of it, but also in the region of the story. The feeding of the 5,000 was in the Jewish area of the uh, nation of Israel. We are now in the Decapolis or the Gentile region. So as we think about the disciples not understanding that Jesus was going to do this again, it could be that they were forgetful. It could be that they lacked the faith in his power to be someone that could do this on demand. Or it could be that they lacked the scope of his compassion to reach into the entire world, into the Gentiles. He feeds them also. And of course, when compassion goes off the rails... When it goes beyond the reach of what people expect, when more people are brought in, when the reputation of God's goodness and his mercy and his love increases, out come the Pharisees. It says in verse 11, then the Pharisees came out and they began to dispute with him, seeking from him, this is rich, a sign from heaven. In other words, They'd like to see Jesus do something so that they could actually believe that he had the power and the authority of God. And they meet him. It says they come out. This is not like they were waiting, you know, from their little position in the synagogue or the Sanhedrin or the place of the the religious sacred uh, spots in Israel. They sought him out because his reputation was growing and because they heard of what he was doing. And because the Gentiles were being blessed. And they sought him out to seek a sign. To see him move. And the key for all of that, lest we be confused that it's not good to see God move or it's not good to ask for more uh, authority to be established through written word or through fulfilled prophecy. All these things that get mixed up in their ill intentions. Testing him disputing with him. They came out arguing with him. They came out looking, as they often did, as legalists and self-righteous people for reasons to not believe. And again, we have not just a continental divide between the Gospel of Mark and people asking the question and now the Christ revealed. We have a continental divide in how we react to the God of our age. How God is still on the move. How this sanctuary is filled with people who bow down before the Lord because of his goodness. 
because of his grace, because of the ways that they have followed him and been satisfied, overflowing with joy. God has healed and set free and saved, opened the eyes of the blind in this place. Countless people in this room right now. God has probably spoken to countless of you through his word right now. God has allowed each one of you to go on a journey with him and heard the gospel preached. To hear a revelation that could only come from God. Flesh and bones cannot reveal to you the power of God's love for you. And it's been proclaimed in ways that other generations would have longed for what we have. And yet we live in a generation that seeks a sign to say, God, prove it. What have you done lately? I don't see any miracles. I don't see the ocean parting like it did in the Old Testament. I don't hear a voice of heaven coming down saying, this is my son. And so those who seek a sign in this moment and now are admitting and confessing without knowing their hardness of heart to say, all that you've done doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. People in this sanctuary right now have had experiences with God and they've hardened their hearts. And they said, well, what have you done for me lately, God? And so he says to them, as he says to us, a thing that will be repeated over and over and over again, generation to generation. How long must God strive with us? The God who is long-suffering and patient, how long must he give grace and, and pour out his love and proclaim his gospel before people finally receive it and stop asking for more? And he sighs deeply, it says in verse 12. It's a sigh of disappointment. It's a sigh of Jesus' own marveling at their unbelief and hardness of heart to see the signs that were already be given. Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given. It makes us think all the way back to how the Gospel of Mark really picked up the ministry of Jesus when he gave the parable of the sower sows the seeds. And those with hard hearts, the seed never gets anywhere near the heart and it's picked off immediately. And in the same way, he says to them, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. For those who have eyes to see, let you see. No sign will be given except for all that has already been given. A multitude was just fed. A blind man was just healed. A woman with a flow of blood had it miraculously healed and she was restored to the community. Demons are being cast out. He's motivated by compassion, not by evil or not by selfishness. The signs were everywhere and they missed it. And here's the danger for all of us listening to this story and reading as we often do, hoping that we're a disciple and not a Pharisee. The Pharisees knew the word so well. They combed through it so intently that they missed it completely. They wanted more and more and more because knowledge puffs up and it never has an end. And Jesus could have given a sign and it wouldn't have been enough. 
And there are those of you here that God has spoken to you. He has given you the proverbial wake-up call. You have bent your knee before him, and you have forgotten everything. And now you stand before him and say, I haven't seen you work lately, Lord. And to you, no further sign will be given. According to God's perfect timing, it says in Romans chapter 1, eventually he lets people do what they want to do. He gives people over to their own unrighteousness. May we not be the generation that seeks a sign in the midst of the gospel and the richness of the glory of God displayed all around us. You want a sign? Look at the stars of the heaven. It declares God's glory. You want a sign? Open the word and test the truth of God's wisdom and power. You want a sign? Obey and find yourself satisfied, full of joy. You want a sign? Listen to the miraculous testimonies of all that God has done to reveal himself as a living God to this generation. And of course, there are also those that don't get it, but there's still grace. Because to be honest, all of us in times go through these moments where we don't quite see Christ fully and not clearly. And now we get a second way to review this whole study through the lens of someone who's struggling. Not the Pharisee this time, but the disciples themselves. So in verse 13, it says, He left the Pharisees and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. And now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Oh no, it's repeating. It's all going down again. Let's just go back to the beginning of the sermon. Jesus is going to provide. And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. These are, the disciples are like kids, aren't they? It's like you get all of this food and you get the leftovers. And it's like grab your leftovers and let's go. And they forget them. And then they're hungry. And they got no food. And so as they'd forgotten to take the bread, Jesus is going to use their forgetfulness as a moment to give them a parable. He says in verse 15, he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Well, there's, a, there's a bread parable. Leaven is used like yeast in the, in, in the bread to make it rise. You cook with it. And it's also a biblical reference point to how something little can spread everywhere. Beware of the leaven, lest it leaven a whole lump. It was given in the context of someone who had sexual sin that needed to be dealt with, lest that get everywhere. But, of course, in verse 16, it says, they reason among themselves and saying, it's because we have no bread. He's calling us out. <laughs> he, we forgot the bread, and he's talking about leaven. He's about to rebuke us for being so forgetful. And it, whose turn was it to bring the bread? You know, they're infighting now. So Jesus is now going to explain to them, why do you reason that you have no bread? It's not about the bread that you have. He's teaching the leaven of the Pharisees in the moment that they just saw an interaction with the Pharisees. Matthew will say, it wasn't the bread, it was the teaching and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It was the hard heart and the rigid, stiff-armed against the movement of Christ in their day that, he will, that will spread. And of course, skepticism and hardness of heart and a, a scoffing at the things of God and a doubt that persists in a generation. It, of course, that will spread. He says, beware lest you, like the Pharisees, don't open your eyes to all that God is doing. It wasn't the fact that you only have one loaf. I'll take care of you. 
Why do you reason because you have no bread? Did you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? This is a rebuke now to the disciples, but there is grace in the, in the rebuke. Because as the Pharisees have hardened their heart, lest they see anything of Christ, he says, nothing will be given to you. And for the disciples, he says, remember, 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 remember the goodness of God. As you fail to see God moving, as you fail to understand his timing, as you wonder what the word is trying to speak into your life, which all of us will struggle with. We see through a mirror dimly lit. Our hearts will grow hard. Our eyes will go blind. We don't fully see the future as it's going to unfold, but we trust in him for everything. And as we do that, he says, don't forget. I've already cared for you. I've already provided for you. I've already done everything for you to remind you that I'm motivated by compassion and no one who seeks me will ever beg for bread and no one who cares or comes after me will ever be unsatisfied. Remember the lesson. I will care for you. So the beauty and the grace of this is not that True disciples now see in technicolor with 2020 spiritual vision. Of course, all of us will go through periods of time where we are not fully seeing God for his glory and his wisdom and his goodness. But for every one of you who have eyes to see and hearts to be softened, Christ will put into your remembrance all that he's already done. Remember the day of your salvation. Not by works, but by grace. And tomorrow, when you stumble and wrestle with flesh in the fallen world and you feel condemned, remember your standing. There is no condemnation in Christ. Behold, all things are made new. You are a new creation Remember, remember, remember. And when you remember that he has made you righteous in Christ, your righteousness is not your own, not by works of the law, but by the righteousness of Christ placed into you. Lest you boast, lest you grow prideful, remember to be humble. And remember all that God has done so that you continually seek him for all that he is still going to do. We'll end with one last moment of repetition that we actually do every week, so it's good to inform this moment of repetition. In the Gospel of Matthew, the further account does not say that no sign will be given. It actually says to the Pharisees, no sign will be given except that of Jonah. In other words, Christ was going to stop revealing himself through miracles for the Pharisees to see, but there is one miracle that he could not share and would be revealed for all of them to see, and that was the ultimate miracle, the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was buried in the belly of a whale for three days, so Christ will be buried in the belly of the earth, and then he will rise again. That is the miracle and the sign that all of us stand on. And we remember the sign 
of the resurrection. And it informs every other question about the goodness of God in your life. If he did not spare his own son, how much more will he freely give you all things? Yet while you were still a sinner, Christ died. How much more that you're part of the family of God will he care for your life? And so it's a moment of repetition because the, the Bible says that as often as we gather, we do this in remembrance of him. It's a reminder that whatever waits for you tomorrow, you're forgiven, you're in good standing with God, and he will provide all things for you. And we hold in our hands his body and his blood, the power of eternity. And it is the last and only uh, symbol that we need to trust him for everything else. If you've never believed in him for that, you're welcome to have your eyes opened, your heart softened, your ears to hear right now the voice of God inviting you in freely to go from a hard-hearted legalist, a hard-hearted religious person that's looking for your own version of Christ, to a disciple fumbling as we may be, a disciple of Christ, freely accepted into the family of God.